0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hey, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Avi Izakarov. Avi is the co creator of the hit Israeli action drama series Fauda. Fauda means chaos in Arabic, it's won numerous awards. It's available to stream on Netflix, and they will be streaming their fourth season this year. I highly recommend the show. Avi is also a journalist and an author with deep experience on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We caught up in his apartment in Tel Aviv. I hope you enjoy the interview. I hope you learn from it. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm delighted to be sitting here with Avi Izaklarov. I know I'm pronouncing it wrong because it has a much better, uh, much better tone. And um, I'm in his apartment. I'm overlooking a beautiful neighborhood in Tel Aviv. And uh, Avi, tell me how I got your name wrong. Tell me how it's really pronounced and what your background is.
0: It's Isakharov But because I know that you're American, I told you right at the beginning, go for the easier version, which is Izakharov. And I hope that was easy enough. Easy enough. Yeah.
1: <laughs> One of the reasons I'm excited is um, I get to do some interesting things now. People who used to interview me and talk to me when I was at the White House, I now get to interview them. So you and I met when there were a group of Palestinians uh, meeting with me. I think it was in the King David. Yep. And uh, you came over to me and I had no idea. I don't know, I don't even know if Fado was in your head yet. But you came over to me very knowledgeable, we spoke, I'm not sure if you did a, an article or didn't do an article, and then one day, I look at the TV, and I see the show, and I see the name Avi Azekaroff, and I think, wait a minute, I know that guy. So I start watching the show, and I, I'm just in love with it, because it's so real, it so tries to tell the story of the conflict from all directions, it shows the complexity of the conflict. And I used to tell all of the Arab leaders and others in the Arab countries who I met way before the Abraham Accords actually was um, planned. I said, You got to watch this show. If you really, really want to understand, forget what you're reading in the newspapers. If you really want to understand it, this brings it to life in a way that shows, you know, from a person, from a heart, from a loss. So tell me, how did you, what made you think to do this?
0: Well, I've been covering the Palestinian. territories, meaning the West Bank and Gaza Strip for the last... I mean, since June 2000. That was the eve of the Camp David summit, if you remember that, July 2000. That was the eve of the second uprising, the second intifada. And I was a real beginner. I didn't have any background in journalism. Uh, I was in the Israeli Special Forces. And uh, for me, media and uh, newspapers, journalism was the enemy in a sense. But when I started working for the Israeli public radio, so I got to know the Palestinian side way, way better, in a way from inside, because I was traveling a lot in the West Bank, in Gaza, meeting people that were wanted terrorists, by definition, in Israel. People that some of them I got to know as a soldier looking for them. And then as a journalist, I'm coming and interviewing them. So that was a, a very unique experience experience for me, I must say, looking at the narrative of the other side, getting to know the narrative of the other side. It's not that I agreed with everything that they said, of course, but getting to see things from the other side, I think it's a privilege that you're given as a journalist. And while I was doing that, I was still doing reserves. I was still doing miluim. We call it miluim. You go to the army, to the Israeli army. And over there, I met my friend that I knew even before the army, Lioraz, my partner in crime, the the main actor of uh, Fauda. And one evening in Milouim, we started to discuss uh, the option of doing something that will deal with the kind of a unit that we served in. And at the same time, we'll also discuss the situation on the Palestinian side, meaning it's not going to be only from the point of view of the Israeli undercover soldiers, but it's also going to be from the Palestinian perspective. And this is what made us start with this project. That was around 2010. No one wanted the show. No one was interested in it, in Israel, I mean. But, you know, sometimes good things happen. And at the end of the day, we managed to find ourselves with uh, yes Satellite company in Israel who bought it, who aired it, and like two years later, Netflix were the ones who bought it from, yes.
1: And is it popular now in Israel despite the original uh, approach? Because it's certainly popular among
0: the crowd that I run in. Uh, Popular, I would say, an understatement. Uh, I think. You know, I'm trying to be very modest. No, please (laughs) don't.
1: I think it's an incredible show. Now you get Uh, to say that.
0: No, I'm not saying that it's an incredible show, but it's very, very popular in Israel. I don't think that there's more popular show right now in Israel than Fauda. Uh, And you see that again. You know, I saw a TV show that someone telling someone... You, didn't, you you watch too much fauda so it's a kind of, it became part of the language it's became part of the the culture almost you know everything that is being made by the show or through the show it gets time on air on the tv on the radio whatever you know the fact that we did an agreement a business agreement with some pro- producers in the us took it to the headlines, like it was about the pandemic, it was about COVID, about Iran, and then Fauda.
1: It was well, well deserved. And and I'll be honest, when I watched, let's say the first two episodes, I then had to stop because it was so stressful for me because I wasn't doing what you did and what you did to protect the state of Israel and all the work that you did, but it felt a little bit too personal because these were people that I was meeting and trying to help bring together. The scene of the wedding, that is how I sell the show. I say, it shows just how difficult everybody's life is. You know, you have the Israelis who have to go in because they have the opportunity to catch this terrible terrorists, but then you have the collateral damage. So it's very well done. And and I'll say that, I I don't know, I guess it's been around, the show has been around a while, so I'm not going to do a spoiler alert, but for anyone who hasn't seen it, close your ears for just a moment. To me, one of the most sad scenes was when, is it Shirin, is that her name, the doctor, the Palestinian female doctor, when she killed herself. Um, this is a woman who you know, just wanted a normal life. She was a professional. She actually got to escape the situation that she was in, and yet she found it necessary to take her own life. And I think how you captured all that is remarkable. I heard this story, I don't know if it's true, that once or more than once, Hamas may call you and critique your work. Is that true?
0: No, I've been in touch with Hamas leaders for, uh quite many years, I visited them in their offices, in their houses, I saw them in some personal moments, I saw them in some public moments, I remember myself, uh, and they probably don't like to to hear this story again, but (laughs) they tend to forget that they were in touch with Israeli journalists, even on the record, not off the record. So I I have a great photo with Ismail Haniya from his office in 2007, if I'm not wrong, I visited the house of Mahmoud al-Zahar after Israel assassinated two of his sons. And I remember myself reaching to his house. I've met, of course, Sheikh Ahmad Yassin, the founder of Hamas, in his house. And I remember myself sitting with Sheikh Ahmad Yassin. He described to me that, you know, one day there was going to be one Palestinian state, state from the river of Jordan to the Mediterranean. And I asked him, what's going to happen with the Jews that are living here. And he said that they will go back to their states. But I said, like, listen, my family came here around 1900 or even before. I mean, my father's side came on the 19th century. And I said, so in that case, you're going to be citizens. And I said, what do you mean, citizens? Palestinian citizens? He said, yes, of course. What, do you want to be American citizens? I think that that was one of the first time that I've met a Hamas leader and he really made it clear to me that this is his vision and I'm talking about the founder of Hamas the spiritual leader and then later on you see more and more of that you know when I got to Mahmoud al-Zahar's house I knocked on his door and I came as the the Israeli public radio correspondent in 2005 at the end of 2005 right before the elections for the parliament and I knocked on the door and he opened the door and even before I entered the, the house he said and I'll say it in Arabic, and I'll translate. Inta meaning, you are Israeli intelligence, or shinbet. And I looked at him, kind of surprised, and he said, bandura Meaning, even the, the man who sells tomatoes in the market in Israel works for your muhabarat, for your intelligence. So I felt relieved because it's not only me, it's all of us Israelis, even the guy who sells tomatoes in the in the market in Israel. That was his point of view. And then we sat and drank tea and I asked him, what will happen if Hamas will win the elections? That happened a month later. But he said, we can consider to do some kind of business about electricity, about water, about this. And I, it was on record, just like that, on his voice in English. So no one can make a mistake or you didn't translate it right or whatever. He speaks fluent English. And then I aired it in the Israeli public radio. And a few hours later, he said, he came and said, Avi Sakharov is a liar. Just like that, in BBC in Arabic. And I remember that the BBC correspondent called me and he said, is this true, Ayul? And I, I let him listen to the recording. And for Mahmoud al-Zahar, there's a parallel reality. And this is Hamas. People do not understand that, that, but they do not care for their people. They would sacrifice all their people. They are talking about the siege over Gaza. The siege over Gaza. The siege over Gaza can be removed just like that. In a day. In a day. If they would stop using rockets, explosives, weapons against the State of Israel, there's not going to be a siege over Gaza. So I get accused,
1: or I was accused in my time in government, of being Bibi Netanyahu's mouthpiece, the right's mouthpiece, and I used to say that all the time. You know, could Israel do better? Sure, if Israel felt secure, they could help the situation a little bit. But to me, Gaza, the two million or so Palestinians who are living there, are under the iron fist of Hamas. I didn't know, and I want to ask you this question, whether Hamas really cares about them. It sounds like they don't. And if that's the case, what's all this talk about a so-called two-state solution and this and that? If we can't solve the Gaza problem because of Hamas, how do you solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Where do you go from here?
0: And that's the billion-dollar question. I don't think that anyone has a good answer for that, especially now. You know, I think that the closest attempt was during Ehud Olmert's term in September 2008 when he came with this uh, offer to Mahmoud Abbas, who didn't respond immediately. And I can understand why. I mean, Olmert was on the verge of uh, resigning five days after he... Showed uh, Abbas the map, the map that Israel supposedly is willing to withdraw to, he resigned, and people forget that. And he had some warnings from Ehud Barak and Sipilivni that were telling him, Don't do that. Since then, we haven't seen a real attempt by the Israeli government. And I'm not saying that there was a Palestinian partner for that. I do think that Mahmoud Abbas was a partner till a few years ago. But today, or in the last few years, he has done every possible mistake on the internal. Palestinian side I'm talking and he's irrelevant. Today He's irrelevant. So do you ask me about today? Today it's a mission impossible to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I think that 10 years ago it was possible. I think that 10 years ago we could have reached some kind of a resolution or some kind of an agreement regarding the West Bank and the West Bank only. And people that think that we could solve Gaza, either they lie or they do not understand gaza is an unsolvable case right now gaza all the time that hamas is in control you cannot do anything over there and more than that i would tell you if there were true negotiations for peace between the palestinian authority and israel and it would go and proceed to some kind of a point in which you know god forbid you would see peace coming you will see hamas starting to shoot rockets like crazy why in order to prevent peace they don't have any interest in peace They have an interest to keep the situation as it is. And I'm sorry to say that they shared the same interest, just like with the former government in Israel, with Benjamin Netanyahu, that didn't want to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and wanted to keep Gaza as is. And for that, he did many steps that only got Hamas stronger and stronger.
1: Well, today Hamas is, is stronger. I mean, when I was here, I couldn't come into Israel during COVID. You guys were very strict. I did manage to get in once. And that was a time when Hamas was shooting rockets, and their rockets were far more sophisticated. Um, they're obviously getting a lot of talent and money from Iran. Uh, and uh, it's a scary time, you know, th- this region has become incredibly volatile, much more so than ever before. Do you share that assessment?
0: Totally. I think that if you look especially at the north, but also the south, meaning Hezbollah at the north and Hamas at the south. I remember, you know, Hamas is small militias. I remember that on the ground, meeting them, talking to them, wandering around with them. And I really remember the point that I saw for the first time that Hamas is changing from some kind of a gang into an armed militia, almost a guerrilla army. That was the first time that I saw Hamas with army boots, very nice and clean uniform with nice weapons and just walking as a platoon in Bet Hanun area, the north part of Gaza. That was during one of the battles that the IDF had with Hamas 2006, after the kidnapping of Gilad Shalit. And I got there, and I was shocked to see some kind of a platoon of Hamas people walking towards south, just like an army, just like when I was a soldier. Now, this was like five months after they won the elections. They took over some power in Gaza, and since then, they're only building and building and improving and improving. That's for the South. The North, the situation is even worse. We are talking about the biggest terror organization that is operating today in the world, with more rockets than any other army, maybe except China, the U.S., Russia. And they're aimed at Israel and they're threatening Israel. And you could hear in the news just in the last week the threats that they are making against Israel. And we tend to forget that almost because, you know, here in Israel, business is almost as usual. And the world is not really interested in what's going on in Lebanon. No one cares about that. And the world tends to forget that there's one big fi- financier for Hezbollah, which is Iran. With more than $1 billion a year, that is sponsoring them, helping them and they have some income, their own personal income, like from drug trafficking. Hezbollah today is one of the biggest drug cartels in the world. I don't know how much people are aware of that, but they are smuggling drugs from all over. Some of them are from Lebanon, some of them they're dealing with South America, and people tend to close their eyes and ears and just you know, keep things quiet.
1: No, I agree. And I think, again, people are so busy talking about this ephemeral two-state solution without understanding the bigger chessboard here. So my understanding, and you could say you can't tell us yet, but I think it's been reported, is that Lebanon is one of the subjects in your upcoming season. Is that right?
0: It is right.
1: And is that why you added Lebanon into the equation to sort of broaden out the horizon? So maybe People will understand the complexity of the region?
0: It's not only that. I think that the main focus is on the Palestinian Israeli conflict. It still is the main focus. But even when you deal with the Palestinian Israeli conflict, you have to keep in mind that there are foreign elements involved in it. Uh, you know, whether it's called Iran or it's called Hezbollah and other elements too. But I think that, you know, the involvement of Hezbollah in Gaza and in the West Bank was there and still there. I mean, it's not dramatic, but since 2001, Hezbollah was making more and more attempts to send very long arms to support some terrorist organizations like Al-Aqsa brigades. For many years, the Israeli intelligence knew that Hezbollah is financing Al-Aqsa brigades, Some members of Al-Aqsa brigades, not all of them. Even the Palestinian intelligence knew about it and they fought them. They fought all kinds of small organizations that were inspired by Iran or Hezbollah and were trying, attempting to build some kind of an infrastructure in the West Bank. They failed, but we took it to kind of uh, another version of what will happen if they didn't fail.
1: Let's go to the West Bank for a minute. I like to call it Judea and Samaria. Obviously, many people call it the West Bank, and I never dealt with Hamas. To me, those that I met, the Palestinian leadership that I met in in the West Bank, as well as many Palestinians, regular people. I'm not saying we could solve the conflict. There are just so many issues: Jerusalem, uh, what people call refugees, and so on and so forth. But I felt that there was sort of a a desire that if we could figure out how to slice up this pie that they would be comfortable living next to the Jewish state of Israel and cooperating. I get the impression from your experience that that's absolutely not the case with Hamas. But do you agree that in the West Bank, even, even if President Abbas may be ineffective at the moment, that the leadership there could accept whatever you want to call it? Benny Gantz said an entity, we called it a realistic state two states, however you want to describe it, peoples living side by side and having the same kind of relationship that Israel now enjoys with the UAE, Bahrain, and others.
0: Look, according to the last polls, if there were elections today in the West Bank, Hamas would win. So I don't know if, you know, most of the people, the majority of people would like to to live side by side Israel. I would say that there's uh, many Palestinians, there are many Palestinians that would like to live side by side Israel in peace. I don't doubt that, that are willing to do some, let's call it uh, concessions or not concessions, but to try to live normally with the Palestinians, with the Israelis, sorry. But many others, and there's a growing element of those radicals that are not willing even to consider the existence of the state of Israel. God forbids to call it a Jewish state. That's a kind of chilul Hashem. I don't know if you say it, how you say it in English.
1: (laughs) Desecration of God's name in their their God, maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the bottom line is that I think that what I see among the young Palestinians, and this is the more worrying thing for me, if you ask me, and I consider myself an Israeli patriot. I love my life in Israel. I would like to see my daughter live here in Israel. I would like to see my grandchildren growing up and living in Israel. I worry. I worry that the Zionist dream is slowly, slowly, I wouldn't say disappear, but getting weaker. And why is that? Because, you know, you look at the Palestinians and you understand that, you know, around 2.8 million Palestinians living today in the West Bank, not including East Jerusalem. What is their horizon? What do they have in mind? And what we see today in the the Palestinian side is more and more Palestinians, young Palestinians, that are willing to be part of the Israeli state. Not side by side, but inside the state, on one state that you can call it Israel. It doesn't need to be like Sheikh Ahmad Yassin said, a Palestinian state. No, 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 no. They would live inside Israel. And you know, you cannot just ignore their existence. At one day, you will need to decide whether to swallow it or to let it out. Either one of them is either that you give them a state or you get them in and give them full citizenship and give them full rights. And I've, I'm afraid from that moment. And maybe it's not going to come in the next five years, maybe not at 10, maybe even not at 20, but at some point it will come. And maybe it's going to happen after I'm not alive anymore. And, you know, I'm 48 today, so maybe in 30 years I won't be here. No, but no, longer, longer. Don't we, we, don't know. Know we don't know. We don't know. But I do think that it will, at the end of the day, knock on Israel's door and say, hey, there's 2.8 million Palestinians living here under another war that, you know, people do not like to say here, under occupation. And you need to solve this issue one way or the other.
1: Sadly, I agree. There's no solutions. Um, let's talk about art imitating life and, and the young Palestinians, as you mentioned. I forgot the character's name, the boxer in the most recent uh, ser- season. What was his name? Bashar. So he went through a, in my eyes, if, I'm, if I watched it and remember it correctly, uh, quite a transformation, right? I think he represented initially a young Palestinian with tremendous promise, good boxing career ahead of him, a boy in love, what I hoped was a promising future. And then it just spiraled out of control. What what in your mind triggered that spiral? And if he were a real person, would he be unreachable? at the point where the season ended? Or do you think that could be turned around despite what he went through?
0: I think that what we were trying to show about the character of Bashar is many other young Palestinians that are doing terrorist attacks, not because they hate Israelis, but because something happened to them on the personal level. And we wanted to show the connection, of course, to the hero, to the main character, Doron. And the minute that he was accused of being a collaborator, Amil, you can call it in Arabic, meaning a spy of the Israelis, that was over for him. From that moment on, you have two options, to clean your family name, to clean your own name, or to be considered as a jesus, as a spy. And Bashar decided to go and to try to clean his family name. But I think that what Bashar was trying to do is just to present himself himself as a better person in front of his father, especially his father.
1: Do you see hope for... I know you're clear, there's no hope in the near future potentially for the conflict to be resolved, and I can't argue with that, having studied and lived it and tried. But do you see hope, at least in the West Bank, for better lives, calmer?
0: Listen, I see hope generally because i'm an optimistic guy and you know i don't think that you can live in israel for quite a long time without being an optimistic an internal optimistic you know i think that when some american friends of mine are coming and visit just like you did during that time of the wars people cannot understand how can you live like that and we're like okay it's the routine rockets are falling somewhere but hey it's fun You go out and drink some coffee on the streets of Tel Aviv, you hear the siren, you go to the shelter, and you go back to the coffee before it even got cold, okay? About the West Bank, I'm not that optimistic. I mean, you look, especially in the last few months, about what's happening over there. You look at what the leadership, the Palestinian leadership of Fatah and the Palestinian Authority is doing to its own people. And it's like, you can only hold your curly hair and both of us do not suffer from too much hair (laughs) (laughs) and you cannot believe that this is what they're doing you know even now playing with the leaders playing with you know not appointing but signaling that this is the guy that might be the successor of uh, Mahmoud Abbas or you hear you see the corruption you see what is happening over there you just It drives me nuts. Knowing the Palestinian reality is so good. You know, when you push someone like, and I'm sorry to say that because he was dealing a lot with Israel and even with the U.S., Hussein Sheikh, he's like the best example for how corrupt you can be on the economic issues, on even sexual harassment issues. And he's the one that Abbas is pushing to the front and, you know, signaling him as the maybe future successor. Are you crazy or what? And you can understand that, you know, in the day after, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be Fauda. It's going to be chaos.
1: What's your dog's name? It's a very well-trained dog. I might have to have you train my dog.
0: (laughs) His name is Chief and it's a really nice dog.
1: Where did you get the name?
0: My daughter chose the name like 12 years ago when she was three years old. And she decided that she will call him Chief.
1: It's a great name. Last question, Avian, I really appreciate your time. What's in store for you, for Lior? What, is your, what are your next projects coming up?
0: So um, we have Fata 4 coming in July in Israel, then a few months later in Netflix all over and we have some other tv shows and movies that i cannot talk too much about them but one of them that was uh already published is called siege of bethlehem and it's based on a true story that happened here in 2002 during the siege over the church of nativity where jesus christ was born and during the term of the big army operation that Ariel sharon led in 2002 in order to wipe out the terrorist organizations from the West Bank. The Israeli army put a siege over the Church of Nativity for 39 days when a group of armed militants were inside a church with more than 200 people. You can call them hostages, you can call them just Palestinians that were running away from uh, the battle. And at the end of the day, and that was so unique about that story, this siege was solved through negotiations between a Palestinian team, and an Israeli team. And instead of a bloodshed that could have been one of the worst that we have seen, it ended up through negotiations. So you ask me if I'm optimistic. I still believe that, you know, at the end of the day, the two people will need to find their way to talk and to solve it.
1: Look, I've witnessed lower-level government employees, Israeli and Palestinian in the room, talking about day-to-day operations, water, electricity, whatever they respect each other, they get along with each other, oh, they totally. talk the same language. It, it, it's great, but once you raise it up to a certain level, get stuck in politics, and uh, really get stuck. Well, Avi, is Ah,
0: oh, almost. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for welcoming me into your home. Good luck with all of your projects, and I hope you could get Netflix to release the next season earlier, <laughs> at least in America.
0: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Leitrot. Hey, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I really enjoyed speaking with Avi. He has a lot of experience and knowledge about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Avi, together with Lior Raz, created what I consider a very important show, FAUDA. If you haven't watched it, you should. It's uh, available to stream on Netflix. Avi's perspective is very interesting. I appreciate that he welcomed me into his home to chat about his life, about FAUDA, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, And I enjoyed meeting his dog, Chief. We've had a lot of great guests on the podcast. Please do scroll back and listen to anyone that you may have missed. Please do share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. By the way, if you're interested in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Middle East, do pre-order my book. It's available on Amazon. Search my name, Jason Greenblatt, or search In the Path of Abraham. The book will be in print in June. And do follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat brought to you by Newsweek. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader.